following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Have you ever watched a mystery movie after missing the first 20 minutes and you don't quite know what's going on? Or have you ever read a book by skipping to the end and you're going, how did they end up here? And it doesn't make any sense. Well, we need to know the beginning. Would you agree with that? And the same is true with our Bibles. This summer, the FBC preaching team is basically going to teach through selected Old Testament passages and we're going to attempt to connect the dots between them and you'll see this unfold next week as at the end, you probably, hopefully, will have a great overview of the Old Testament. Every sermon will be unique as we go through it. Today's will be an overview of an entire book of the Bible. It's the only one that's this way. So don't panic if you're like, man, that was too much. I can't handle it. But understand, we're going to be looking at Genesis because we can get lost in our Bibles unless we understand the beginning. There's 66 books But in order to get that, we really kind of need to know what the first book says to set things into motion, even though it's one unified story. In fact, let me begin this morning with a two-minute overview of the entire Old Testament. Are you ready? Hang on to your hats. Here you go. The Bible was about and is about how God created mankind to manage the earth as his stewards, to display his character, to share the truth that would lead someone to a saving faith in him. So God multiplied his people in Egypt and delivered them from Pharaoh through the Passover and the Red Sea and gave them a constitution at Mount Sinai through the book of Exodus and Leviticus. Then the scripture shows how God's people failed to believe God in numbers and they were disciplined by God for 40 years of wandering there in numbers. But finally, with a new generation, God reviews his constitution, the law, with the nation in Deuteronomy, kind of a second rendering of the law, right before they take back the land in the book of Joshua. Now they're a people, they have a land, and they have a constitution, which now necessitates that they're a nation. They're a nation uniquely set apart by God, but they failed again. They failed in the sense of by repeatedly violating their constitution, the law, and not fully occupying the land in the book of Judges. They end up losing it all, losing the land itself with no ark, no capital, no priesthood, no land, by rejecting God as their king in 1 Samuel, at the very beginning of that particular book. But instead of repenting, they ask for a king like all the other nations. So God gives them, number one, Saul. He reigns for 40 years. Then they get David. He reigns for 40 years, a man after God's own heart. And then they get Solomon, who had a divided heart. Interesting enough, Uh, during that particular United Kingdom, only 120 years long because they each reigned for 40, Saul, David, and Solomon, what was written during that time is most of the Psalms, most of the Proverbs, all of Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Yet in 1 Kings, Solomon did what Israel's king was not supposed to do, and that was three things. Multiply money, multiply wives, and multiply horses. He was not supposed to do those three things restricted to him in Deuteronomy 17. Strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out, the kingdom divides. In the north is Israel. And they were warned by Amos and Hosea. Uh, They basically split. They had no good kings at all. They're taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. In the south, they had a few good kings in Judah. uh, But they were warned also by multiple prophets 
Isaiah, etc. And then they ultimately did not respond to the law of God and they were disciplined by God by being taken captive by the Babylonians in 605 BC. Interesting enough, that's described in the book of 2 Kings as well as Daniel. In captivity, God for that 70 years reminds them that he's in control, that he's still in charge, that he has a future with for them, that they're not finished yet, and they, he cures them of their idolatry while they're in captivity. He also gives them a new respect for their law compared to the capricious laws of the pagan kings, and he fires up their hope for a Messiah. They return to the promised land, described in Ezra and Nehemiah, and they see the walls of the city rebuilt, the people readied for their Messiah, but as the temple is rebuilt, the people are depressed. You know why? Because the Shekinah glory left in Ezekiel, and he didn't, that Shekinah, the manifestation, the presence of God did not return. And so the prophet Haggai says, the reason why, are you ready? There's a greater glory coming. A greater glory, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God in a bod, is going to come, and now he's going to personally indwell his people, and together they will display his character and share the truth that will lead others to faith in God. And there is the Old Testament. Ta-da! There you go. Now, how did it all start? Well, you won't understand God's Word just like a mystery movie if you stab right at the beginning or you're only kind of focused on the end. You, I mean, in the middle, you've got to understand how it starts at the beginning. And that's the book of Genesis that we're going to look at today. The book of, the theme is beginnings, right? Write it down. What do I mean? It's the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of the nation of Israel. It's the beginning of sin. It's the beginning of the family, the Hebrew race, and redemption telling us that the only way that you can ever be saved is by God saving you, and that's ultimately going to culminate in Christ and the cross. Genesis is both simple and profound. It was written by Moses while this mass of humanity are headed toward the promised land. It's en route so that the Israelites would know their roots and know where they came from. Do you know your roots? Uh, let me tell you what my roots are. I have Irish Belgian roots. Are you ready for that? <clears throat> Irish. Short as we will in the River Shannon, 240 miles. There it is. <clears throat> My dad came from the time of Al Capone. His dad was a rich Irish politician in Chicago. Mueller came from his stepdad. I am not German at all. In fact, my mom comes from a long line of Belgian police chiefs, which is why I kind of have a combo. In one way, I want to shoot you like Al Capone, and in the other way, I want to protect you like a police chief, okay? So that's interesting. But imagine, if you would, being in a family, and you've been enslaved in a foreign country for hundreds of years, and you're like, who am I? Why am I here? Why am I a slave? How did this all start? Help me understand my roots. That's Genesis. It's going to help God's people know who they are. They don't know their history, their family, how they became a slave. They're surrounded by false gods who seem to be in control, seem to be ruling. So who is this one true God? And how did he make us his chosen people? Well, that's Genesis, our beginnings. So what you have in Genesis is four big events in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and four major people in chapters 12 through 50. But the challenge this morning is, what's the real story? 
what's really going on. I'm going to tell you a lot of history today. We're going to fly really fast, okay? So I hope your oatmeal's working. But understand, we're going to go through this, but I want you to also understand what's driving it, what's going on underneath it, what God is trying to accomplish in this incredible book. So start in your outline, track with me. Section number one is the four great events, chapters 1 through 11, and it starts with the creation. Hope you have your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to be bouncing around this book everywhere. Take a look at it. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's right. The Bible begins with a statement about creation. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's the force behind everything. Created, that's his action. Heavens, that's space. And earth, that's matter. So that summary verse, with no gap between verses 1 and 2, He tells us that the universe was created, are you ready? Hang on to your hats, grab onto your railings here, six literal 24-hour days. Okay? I heard an amen. I think that was my wife. Okay. (laughs) Understand, that forces every child in this room, every student in this room, and every adult in this room to make a decision. Will you believe the scientific theory of evolution over God's revelation of creation? Or will you believe the Bible's absolute truth overrules man's relative beliefs? That's the big question that's in front of you. In other words, because of the pressure of intellectual respectability, many want to make the Bible fit modern theories, or because you fear man more than you know, God, uh, you might want to compromise that way, but if you fear God more than man, you'll stand on God's divine revelation of sovereign creation in six days. What have you determined is what Genesis is going to ask you. Genesis 1 is very pointed. Very pointed. Take a look at Genesis 1 verse 5. And there, at the end there, there was evening and there was morning one day. And take a look at the end of verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Verse 13, a third day. Verse 19, a fourth day. Verse 23, a fifth day. Verse 31, a sixth day. The Hebrew word for day is yom, Y-O-M, if you want to, you know, transliterate it from the Hebrew, yom. Yom, 95% of the time it's used in the entire Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word, so it'll only be the Old Testament. It is referring to a 24-hour literal solar day. Are you tracking with me? 95% of the time. Now, any time that yom is used with a number, like day one, day two, day three, 100% of the time, it's only referring to a 24-hour literal solar day. Are you tracking with me? So what you have here in Genesis is day one, day two, day three. Well, 100% of the time in the Bible, yom, when it's used with a number, means a 24-hour literal day. Then you add to that the repetition of morning and evening refers to only one literal 24-hour day. There is a word that is in Hebrew that refers to age. It's called olam, not olaf. Okay, olam. And God could have used it here if Genesis were referring to geological ages, but he didn't use it here, and he's not referring to geological ages. You must know that there are three gigantic reasons that you must embrace a six literal 24-hour day of creation and reject evolution if you are going to believe that the Bible is your authority. If you're not going to believe the Bible is your authority, then we have no common ground. But if you say, I believe this book is God's word, it is the living and active word of God, it is the authority, then there are three major things that would force you to embrace a 24-hour literal one-day creation. Okay, so six days, all right? So you understand this. Number one would be exegetically. Exegetically, Genesis 1 does not allow for any 
normal, literal interpretation, but six literal days. And I just gave you one of the reasons, which is the word yom. That's just one of the reasons. But exegetically, you have to abuse Genesis 1 to make it fit something else. Number two, biblically, the rest of the Bible, the whole Bible, all of Old Testament, all of the New Testament, biblically, as it refers to Genesis 1, it only allows for a creation week made up of six literal 24-hour days. So you're not just rejecting Genesis 1, friends, you're rejecting the entire Bible as it refers to Genesis chapter 1. And then, number three, exegetically, biblically, theologically. If you embrace the theory of evolution in any form, you must believe that there is death before the fall into sin. Now track with me. Evolution would teach survival of the fittest. So animals are killing each other and the surviving ones are fitted in and then they're killing each other over thousands and then millions of years and there's a lot of death going on, all right? A lot of dying going on and eventually we get to, you know, top of the food chain, man and women kind of thing, that kind of thing. So understand, theologically, when you embrace evolution, you're saying that there's all this death before the fall of mankind into sin. But the Bible pointedly states that only the sin of Adam who lived in a perfect sinless world brought about death. Only the sin of Adam. There was no death before the fall into sin, so to embrace evolution is to reject gospel truth. You're rejecting it theologically. God did not create the world through an evolutionary process over billions of years, but about six to maybe 7,000 years ago, God spoke, and there it was. The theory of evolution is just that, a theory. You have nothing to fear from science. Science is the observation of truth, and we have not observed evolution in any way. So I would just encourage you, if you're struggling with this, check out Ken Ham's ministry called Answers in Genesis, AIG. You'll have access to accurate teaching on six-day creation as long as resources exposing the folly of evolutionary teaching. But you've got to make a decision as you go through Genesis chapter 1. Now in Genesis chapter 2, we're moving along. Here we go. God gives not another creation account, but a specific explanation of the sixth day of creation. So Genesis 2 is an expansion of the sixth day. The day that God created the first man and the first what? Woman, yes. How many sexes are there? Answer, two. Their own unique distinct roles. Notice he made them male and female. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 2 verse 19, God even included a special creation of animals in order to parade them in front of Adam so that he would sense his need for a mate. So Adam saw the elephant, and how did he respond? Too big, right? Can't be my mate. He saw the giraffe, too tall. Saw the gorilla, went, maybe, no, no, too hairy. (laughs) After looking at all the animals, not one was suitable. So God made woman, and when Adam saw her in the Hebrew, and I am not making this up, there's an actual wow, you know, connective to this particular word, and it literally means when he looked at Eve, he went, wow! (laughs) Isn't that cool, guys? Yeah, from the beginning. True. And then God gave them a special explanation of the only law, the singular law, that mankind was to obey. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely what? Die. The future of the human race is based on that passage. This one law. And at the end of chapter 2, 
what's the first couple doing? We find them living in bliss and obedience to God's law. Look at the end of, of chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had no sense of guilt at all. Man's in complete harmony with himself, with his world, with his mate, and in complete harmony with his God. But then, something bad happens. Number two in your outline, the fall. The fall. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, has God, I mean, come on, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Subtly and shrewd, this animal that cooperated with Satan to tempt the first couple, he suggests instead of God being your Lord and your friend that you lovingly obey, you become your own Lord and you outwit God by disobeying his one law, Eve was deceived. Adam chose, and they fell. All of mankind at that moment dies. That's what Romans chapter 5, verse 12, look at it in your outline. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and what? Death through sin. That's when death started, friends. Right there, Genesis 3. And so death spread to all men, because all sin. What's death? What does it mean? It means separation from God now. It means physical death in the future. And it can mean, if for those without Christ, spiritual death was a separation from him forever in torment and hell. Sin is a major problem. And it is the issue that drives you to plead for God's mercy and grace. But yet, what happened in humanity from all this fall and all this mankind what they do is they descend rapidly downhill into the depths of sin until it gets so bad, we come to number three in your outline, the flood. The flood. We're going to look at this in detail next week, chapter 6 through 9. But look at chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then he says, And the Lord saw the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Pre-flood, fallen angels procreated with humans and corrupted the human race, even creating giants. Satan knew that he would have to stop. He knew the promise that we're going to look at later, Genesis 3.15, that there was going to be a redeemer that would come through humanity that would then stop him. He knew he'd have to stop God from birthing a redeemer through humanity, through the human race, so he's trying to corrupt the human race. So mankind rebelled also to the point of no return. So basically God initiates a judgment that will change the earth. Flooding the entire planet, killing all creatures and humans except for one small family of believers and two of every kind of animal and they are preserved on Noah's ark. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 talks about this catastrophe. The mockers believe in evolution. That everything today is just as it once was. That's uniformitarianism. Verse 3, take a look. 1 Peter chapter 3, 
know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come. They're going to mock us. They're going to make fun of us, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's the basis for the theory of evolution, uniformitarianism, that nothing changes everything today as it once was. But Peter pushes back in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, what? It escapes their notice that God created the world and later, what? Destroyed by water. <clears throat> this is how creationism explains the world today because of cataclysm, catastrophe. Most scientists, secular scientists, assume today that the present natural order that we see around us today and processes can be extended forever backward into the past. So is it uniformitarianism or is it cataclysm? Well, I mean, you can see it yourself. In 1980, some of you weren't alive then, I couldn't wait for this to happen, Mount St. Helens blew up. We were all waiting. It's going to blow, it's going to blow, and it blew. And when it blew, three days, basically it took, they formed canyons. Canyons that are 140 feet deep, that have strata and layers on them. And if you're an evolutionist, you'd look at that and go, that means millions of years. And it was formed in one day. That's creationism by cataclysm. There are dramatic events that reshape the planet in sudden cataclysmic ways. How catastrophic was the flood? Fossils of fish, this is true, are on every mountain in the world. Gigantic animal graveyards are found worldwide. You would all agree, rainbows are worldwide, right? And Jesus himself said the flood was true, Matthew chapter 24, verses 38 and 39. For as in those days before the flood, Jesus says, until the flood came and took them all away. You reject the flood, you reject Christ. After the flood, God commanded mankind to fill the earth. But what did they do? Number four, they stayed together at, number four, the tower. The tower, chapters 10 and 11. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. Stay with me in your Bible, chapter 11, verse 4. And they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. There are three attitudes that are found that brought about the judgment of mankind in this particular verse. And that is they were self-centered. Let us build for ourselves. They're rebellious. Lest we be scattered. They had a corporate will, not God's will. A tower that will reach into the heavens. They were supposed to live for the glory of God and seek his will and follow his word. They did what they wanted. So God judged them with different languages. Differing and creating Differing nations, and I think differing races. I really do. Every race, would you agree with this? We're all made equally in God's image. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Now, there could be an exception to this, and I'm going to get in trouble by saying this, okay? Asians. Some of you are laughing. Some of you are really nervous right now. You're thinking I'm going to say something really bad. Asians have the edge on every culture because they, 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 they rock in the GPA. Great point average. Isn't that true? <laughs> right? Hispanics? food way better than anybody else. Doesn't every culture bring something to the table that we love and appreciate? Can you say amen to that? That's the point of this. There's no basis for racism. There's no base for prejudice. We were all at the tower. All of us. Now, I don't want to bring ice to Eskimos, so you know the rest of the events. But do you know the real story? What's going on behind all of this? You see, after his creation of the world that was good... The Bible then confronts us with three cycles of sin, judgment, redemption, and promise. 
that goes repeats in those first 11 chapters, sin, judgment, redemption, and promise. Three times you'll discover mankind sinning, leading to God's righteous judgment. Each time out of love, God rescues us from his judgment and then promises a future hope. I'm going to go through these three cycles with you so you can get the big picture. First, in your outline, is the fall cycle. The fall cycle. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Genesis 3, 21. The sin was Adam and Eve and their disobedience and eating the fruit in chapter 3, verse 6, that cast all of mankind into sin. The judgment was the curse and the consequence of the fall in verses 14 through 19. The redemption is not obvious at a first read, so I want you to see it found in verse 21. Take a look at it. Genesis 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made what? Garments of what kind? Ooh, where do you get garments of skin from? Animals. So some animal had to die to provide them and Adam and his wife with clothing. To us, it's a gracious act. To the Israelite, in the Exodus, they would automatically think of the Passover. They would automatically think of an innocent animal for sin. They would think of the Passover and the substitutionary atonement that took place on Adam and Eve's part to provide skins for clothing. Can you imagine what it was like for you to be there the first time a single animal died? You've never seen death before, ever. And now you watch an animal die for the very first time. You watch it go through the shock, experience the convulsions, you see the blood, and then finally there's the stillness of death. A death that occurred because of your sin. They are skinned, and now you wear those skins to cover the guilt of your sin. They cover your sin. What a graphic object lesson to demonstrate to Adam and Eve the horror of sin and the costly price of redemption. Are you getting it? Right out the gate. With this redemption comes a promise. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 commonly called the Proto-Evangelium. Now, that's Latin for first gospel. And that's what you have right out the gate, the gospel. It says, I will put enmity between you, as he's talking to the servant, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Now, a woman's seed might be a veiled reference to the virgin birth, since women don't have seed. But here, the singular offspring of the woman, we know him to be Christ, will crush the enemy's head. We know him to be Satan, the one who was the influence behind the actions of the serpent. And the promise here is of a coming seed. A promise that is repeated through the entire book of Genesis and repeated through the entire Old Testament. The seed promise of a coming Messiah who would then rectify this sin issue that separates you from God. To bring about redemption to a rebellious human race from the very start. Would you agree that our God is merciful, gracious, and loving right out the gate? That's true. You say, oh wait, Chris, did Adam and Eve really get this? What's the name of their third son? Anybody know? Seth. You know what Seth means? It means, I'm not making this up, literally it means seed. They understood And we're hoping in this coming seed that would then bring redemption to them. Understand, 
that leads us to the second cycle, which is the flood cycle. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 begins the description. Take a look at it. Genesis 6, 5. Stay with me now. Keep turning in your Bibles. Don't fall asleep. Let that oatmeal do its work. So it begins with this worldwide sinning. And then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. As a result of this depraved situation, we all know the flood was God's righteous judgment, the ark was God's gracious redemption, but maybe you've never seen the promise in Genesis chapter 9, verse 27. Take a look at the promise. In the midst of Noah's curse of Canaan, he prophetically addresses all three brothers in verse 27, and grammatically it's best to translate this verse stating this, God will enlarge Japheth, and then here's the phrase, but he, God, will dwell in the tents of who? Shem. This is the promise to the future nation of Israel. They're in the line of Shem. Prophetically, God is saying he will dwell with the descendants of Shem in a special way. God will be with you, Israel. God will dwell with his children. That's something that we can enjoy. And by the way, you're on the Exodus. You're hearing this promise. You automatically go, he's going to dwell with us. With the, the, the ancestors of Shem. We are the ancestors of Shem. Which leads us now to the third cycle found in Genesis chapter 11, the tower cycle. Turn to Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Stay with me. It's the sin which is in direct obedience to the command given in Genesis 9.1. In Genesis 9.1, it says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The human race said in response, come, chapter 11, verse 4, let us build for ourselves a city. And a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Why a tower? So they can get to heaven? No. The text says, lest we be, what? Scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What did God say? Fill the whole earth. And what did they do? We're not going to be scattered. We're not going to fill the whole earth. We're going to defy God. The sin was they wanted to establish a worldwide utopia apart from God. And this tower was the rallying point of an ideal society without God. The judgment came when God confused their languages, which created people groups, which later became the nations of the world. So then where's the redemption? Remember, we're in a cycles here. Where's the redemption? Where's the promise of the third cycle? What we overlook when we look at the Old Testament story of the Tower of Babel is that God created nations. So how is God, who is a saving God, going to reach these now multiple nations with the good news that they can trust in Yahweh and be saved by his, you know, his graciousness and, and like, like Abraham was, to be rescued by faith? So how did God save the peoples of these nations now that there are so many different peoples and languages and a saving God who wants to do this and all these people groups? Well, to bring redemption and promise to these new nations and complete the third cycle, God's going to create, are you ready? A nation that will reach the nations. God will create a nation that will be uniquely his. A nation that will reflect his character. A nation that will represent his will to the world. A nation that will dispense the knowledge which leads to faith in Yahweh. And that leads us to section number two of Genesis, which is the four great people. Genesis chapters 12 through 50. And as chapter 12 begins and opens, God will call one man who will become a nation to reach the nations. And his name is Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house 
to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The redemption promise of the third cycle is a man, Abraham, who would become a nation to reach the nations. Ultimately, we know that the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, is uniquely filled by the person and work of Jesus Christ. But how were they, again, you're thinking the Exodus now, you're there putting it in context, the people of Israel, how is this nation that would become from Abraham be a blessing to the nations before the time of Christ? How's that going to happen? Study their lives and see if you can determine what's really going on. What's the real story? Well, you probably know Abraham so well, you call him Abe. So Abe is called by God with his immediate family to leave his country Ur, halfway obeyed, he lived in Haran. He was supposed to leave his father and all his family, but he halfway obeyed and waited until he died, and then he took his nephew Lot with him, so to this new land, and to give to, you know, basically Abraham and to his descendants this land of Israel. Abraham and Lot finally separate in Genesis chapter 13. As a result, then God promises Abraham and his beautiful wife Sarah in chapter 15 that they will fulfill God's promise of becoming a great nation by having a son of their own. They're already old at this point. Not fully believing God, Abraham and Sarah try it their way, chapter 16, by having a son through Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and thus Ishmael is born. But this isn't God's promise, so God waits even longer to prove that he alone can make this happen. In chapter 21, Isaac is born. In chapter 22, God tests Abraham's faith by commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac, but who represented everything that was important to Abraham, and Abraham passes this greatest test of faith. Secondly, we focus, and the focus turns to Isaac, who marries Rebekah in chapter 24, and has two sons, Jacob, and who else? Esau. That transitions, not a lot on Isaac, to chapter th- uh, number 3, chapters 26 to 36. Jacob becomes the focus. He steals Esau's birthright through deception, then flees from his hairy brother to Abraham's original homeland. And there, Jacob marries two gals, Leah and Rachel, who each have a handmaiden. And from these four women, Jacob has 12 sons. Now, while there, Jacob grows rich. Uh, He makes his way back into the promised land, the chosen land. On his way there, he wrestles with our Lord Jesus Christ personally and receives a new name, Israel. Soon after, he's reconciled to his brother Esau. And from his favorite wife, Rachel, Jacob has two favorite sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Number four, the fourth person in the focus of Genesis, the other brothers don't like the favorite Joseph. Now, on the surface, there are two reasons. He's daddy's favorite, right? We all resent daddy's favorite. Anybody with me? And then he has a very loud wardrobe. Are you with me on this? But really, the reason they really don't like him is because he has dreams about his father and all his brothers bowing down to him. And he foolishly tells that to his brothers. That's really dumb. Okay? You're all going to bow down to me. Uh, We hate you. Okay? So the brothers are going to kill him, but then they decide to sell him as a slave. They tell dad he's dead. He ends up in Egypt, and he worked for Potiphar. Now, Potiphar's wife put the moves on Joseph, and he lands in prison, falsely accused. And probably Potiphar knew that, you know, his wife was not being exactly faithful. Otherwise, Joseph would have been killed. 
So even in prison, Joseph helps the jailer. He interprets dreams from some fellow prisoners who are close to Pharaoh. Two years later, one of those serpents tells Pharaoh that Joseph's talent with dreams. Joseph's called before Pharaoh. Joseph gives all glory to God for his abilities in this dream interpreting. And he tells about his dream, Pharaoh's dream, of a coming famine. Joseph is honored by Pharaoh by making Joseph number one leader in all of Egypt, just second only to Pharaoh to prepare Egypt for this famine. Well, they've been storing food for seven years. Seven years later, as the rest of the world is now starving, they come to Egypt for food. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt as well to eat Joseph's eventually uh, wonderfully stored food. And Joseph then reveals himself to them and expresses his forgiveness. He says to them a verse that you must memorize. Genesis fifty twenty. if you know it, and that's great. If you don't, make sure you do. It says this. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To preserve many people alive. Okay, so you got it. You got the history. That's fine. But do you really know what's going on here? Let me tell you what's happening behind the scenes, the real story. It's true that many of the promises given to Abraham are going to be fulfilled by Christ and his work on the cross. But again, the question you've got to ask in the context here, how is Israel... In the Exodus, this new nation that would come from Abraham, is it going to be a blessing to all the other nations before the time of Christ? Okay, because that's the promise here. Israel was to represent the character of God to the other nations. Israel was to dispense the knowledge that leads to faith. Israel was to have a unique purpose, a unique unity, and a unique separateness that would cause people to go, hey, you're really blessed by your God. Wow, you have an intimacy with him. Wow, we want to know this God. And they would be drawn to turn to the true God. They were to be a messenger that dispenses the knowledge which leads to faith in Yahweh. What's so sad is when you read chapter 12 and you read it consecutively all the way to chapter 50, you'll find a massive decline where there was a massive embracing of their purpose, unity, and separateness with Abraham there is a massive loss of that in the sons of Jacob. And I want to illustrate that for you. So first, in your outline, God does some really radical things in order to preserve his people, and they had lost their purpose. First, in your outline, they lost their purpose as a nation that would bless all the other nations on the earth. Israel was to be that nation that would uh, reach all those nations that were created at the Tower of Judgment, with the truth that would lead other nations to faith in the true God. So Psalm 67 verse 13 in your outline teaches us clearly what Israel was to do. They prayed, be gracious to us, God, and bless us. Why? And cause your face to shine upon us. Why is that? That your way might be known on the, where? Earth. And thy salvation among all, what? All the nations. God would bless Israel so they could reach the nations and at times they did. Hiram, the king of Tyre, was totally influenced by the life of David, and he followed uh, Yahweh because of David. The queen of Sheba followed Yahweh because of the witness of Israel through Solomon. And even when you look at the lives of Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then their son Jacob, you see them at times building altars. This was one way that they gave evidence that they were following the one true God, that they were honoring him above all, that he's the one that provided all these blessings. So when God spoke to them, when God visited them, when God made promises to them, they would build an altar. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, it says this, And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. 
So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Abraham built another altar in Genesis 13. Isaac built one in Genesis 26. Jacob, his son, built an altar in Genesis 35. But when you study the lives of the sons of Jacob, not once did they build an altar. Not once, are you ready, did they call upon the Lord. Not once did they seek or honor him. They lost their direction. So much so, it got so bad, instead of being a witness to the peoples around them, the Canaanite people, they actually deceive and kill an entire city. Look at Genesis 34. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis 34. Tricking the men of Shechem into thinking that they would allow their sister to marry their prince who was named Shechem, and later intermarry and trade with them, the brothers ask all the men of Shechem to get circumcised. So when the men are really sore on the third day, the two sons of Jacob enter the city and they kill all the men. The other brothers loot the entire city and enslave the women and children. Jacob, the father, is really upset. And what he says, look at what he says in Genesis chapter 34, verse 30. It says, you have brought trouble on me by making me, anybody know that word? Odious among the inhabitants of the land. They will gather together against me and attack me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my household. It's true. Israel's now really in trouble. They're really in trouble because is any Canaanite city going to ever trust them again? Are they going to trade with them? Are they going to trust them? They may attack them and kill them in the night, all because they lost their sense of purpose to share the truth that could lead others to faith in the one true God. They forgot what they were about. Number two, the second reason why we find the family of Jacob into the land and, and the land of Egypt instead of in the land of Israel, that large family lost sight of their unity. Now Abraham demonstrates a strong priority to preserve unity. Turn to Genesis 13, please, if you would. Genesis 13, early on when there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot, Abraham told Lot that he could have any land he wanted. Any land he wanted. What does he say in Genesis 13, verse 9 and following? Is not the whole land before you, Lot? Please separate yourself from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Lot chose for himself the well-watered valley of the Jordan. Unity was a very high priority with Abraham. He didn't want their herdsmen fighting with one another. They had, though, lost that just four generations later. You know the story in Genesis chapter 37. The sons of Jacob are showing the ultimate disunity by plotting to kill their own brother. Now, would you agree with me that they lost unity by wanting to kill their brother? Is everybody with me on this? It seems kind of obvious, but they saw Joseph, uh, 37, 18, when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close, they see that loud coat. He's, they're all thinking about bowing down to him. They plotted against him to put him to death. They had no clue what God was trying to accomplish with them through their unity as a testimony to God's character. They completely lost the priority of unity. Not just purpose, but unity. And then thirdly, as you travel from chapters 12 through 50, the family of Abraham subtly loses their separation from their sinful culture. Israel was to be so unique in their lifestyle that God would be glorified through their lives. Turn, if you would, please, please turn there to Genesis 24. Genesis 24, Abraham's so committed to remain separate from his sinful culture, you find him making a, his servant, Eleazar, swear. 
you will not take a wife for his son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites. Abraham doesn't know long how long he's going to live, so he's got to get this servant, this, this steward, Eleazar, make sure he doesn't intermarry with the Canaanites. You've got to go back to my distant relatives. They're more moral there uh, and find a wife for him and, and keep it within the family. That's how Abraham and how far he went to be separating himself from the sinful practices of the Canaanite people living around him. Look at Genesis 24, verses 3 and 4. I make you swear by the Lord that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now in stark contrast, just 14 chapters later, just 14 chapters in Genesis 38, Judah shows absolutely no commitment to separate from his sinful culture. You say, how does he do it? He not only marries, intermarries with a Canaanite woman, but he ends up having sexual relations with his Canaanite daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, that is a massive failure. Would you agree to be separate from the Canaanite culture? Yes? And yet, hidden in the midst of that massive failure in bad immorality, God also makes this damaging compromise an expression of his mercy, his wisdom, and his sovereignty. For Judah and Tamar's offspring, his name is Perez. You know who he is? He's the great granddad of King David. And he's in the line of Jesus Christ. You thought you had a bad background. And God took this offspring and said, you're going to be in my lineage. Now that's grace. Are you with me on that? Listen, talk about a testimony to God's mercy and grace and love. You thought your background was bad. Behind these four great people, the reason why they are in Egypt and not in the promised land, the real story is this. They lost their purpose. They lost their unity and they lost their separation. And they're in a dangerous place if they remain in the land. So God puts them in the womb of Egypt. In the midst of their failure. In the midst of our failures. He plants his chosen seed. His people in the womb of Egypt. To birth the nation of Israel. To continue to accomplish his redemptive purpose. And sold into slavery by his brother Joseph said. You meant it for evil and God meant it for good close your eyes with you and let me speak to your heart you already have this in your outline so you're not missing anything God is always at work no matter how bad it looks no matter how hard it is for you Christian whatever you're going through Christ is working all things together for good if you're his child Everything works together for good. Secondly, God expects you to live unique. Holiness does have a sense of purity. But the main emphasis of the word holy is the uniqueness. To be unique by obeying his word, not in your own strength, but by the power of the spirit. You can't do it on your own. But be, be unique. Live unique. Instead of grumbling, give thanks. Instead of outbursts of anger, be silent. Instead of out-of-control behavior, depend on him or rely on him. Instead of focusing on your needs, serve others. 
you're to be unique, where people go, why are you so different? Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And thirdly, God left you here to share the gospel. One of the main reasons you're here on earth is simply to do what you can't do in heaven. And what you can't do in heaven is share the gospel. That's why you're here. Don't be like Israel. Don't be like a marginal Christian. Don't hide behind God's sovereignty. You are to share the truth that Christ is God, who became a man, suffered and died for your sin, took all the punishment you deserve for sin upon himself, rose from the dead and lives as the only way to know truth, to have abundant life and eternal life forever. It is only through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. You, church, are to be a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And God desires each one of you in this room to turn from your sin, to put your faith and trust and life in Christ to die to yourself, exchange all that you are for all that he is, and trust his work on the cross, beg him to transform your life, because now you know the real story. Heavenly Father, we pray you take your word and transform our lives, that you would make us into the men and women you want us to be, that you would glorify yourself, not just by us hearing truth, hearing your word, but by us responding in worship, which means we align our lives according to your word and we make adjustments in how we live so that we might please you. That's our whole goal, to trust you, the God who doesn't change, is immovable, is always faithful, and will give you glory for what you'll do. We thank you and we praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.